This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity convened another set of week-long talks in Nairobi just at the end of June. There were a couple of clear wins, but others described the talks as, and I'm quoting here, Groundhog Day in Nairobi. Was this really the case? With biodiversity an issue too important to fail, what were some of the key outcomes of this set of talks? So I'm going to find out from Lim Lee Ching, a senior researcher with the Third World Network who was also in Nairobi for the talks. Welcome, Li Ching. How are you today? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So as I mentioned, the CBD convened the set of talks in Nairobi, right? And the official title of this talks, and it's a bit of a mouthful, is the fourth meeting of the open-ended working group on the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. It was held from the 21st to the 26th of June. Can you remind us what these talks were for? Um, you know, and, and we know that there were some talks earlier this year also in Geneva in March. How does all of this relate and, you know, what is it leading up to? Okay. Well, um, this uh, meet, uh, working group has been meeting, well, this is their fourth meeting already, uh, and basically under the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, parties are negotiating what is called the Post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, or you know, for short, I'll call it the GBF. Uh, this is meant to set out the international agenda and priorities uh, for biodiversity, conservation, sustainable use, and fair and equitable sharing of the benefits arising from the utilization of genetic resources. Now, these are the three objectives of the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's basically like their, their strategic plan for the next 10 years uh, up to 2030. Okay. Now, of course, because of the pandemic, um, these talks were delayed. They were meant to be, you know, this whole GBF was meant to be adopted in 2020, but um, obviously due to COVID-19, uh, many of the meetings were delayed and now we're finally coming uh, to 2022 and we're looking at this Global Biodiversity Framework or GBF being adopted at the end of the year um, in December of this year. Mm -hmm. So it will basically set out the international priorities uh, for biodiversity uh, in, for the next eight years. Um, this meeting uh, follows on from talks that were held in Geneva in March 2022. Now, at those talks, um, it was quite clear uh, for various reasons that uh, parties were nowhere close to any agreement. Mm. So then it was decided to hold this meeting in Nairobi. This was an extra meeting that was added on uh, because they realized that they needed more time to be able to negotiate. Sure. Now, part of that was because, uh, obviously, during the pandemic, uh, there were no face-to-face -face meetings. And the CBD did embark on, on, on uh, virtual uh, talks. Uh, but because of, you know, obviously for many reasons, uh, one of them being uh, inequitable access to the digital technologies, uh, particularly for developing countries, but also for observers such as farming communities, indigenous peoples, civil society organizations. It was very hard to, to hold um, these kind of negotiations in a virtual setting. Mm. Therefore, finally, when we came to Geneva in March 2022, there was hope that there would be progress. However, because of a lack of time for the discussions to mature, there was just no consensus. Mm. So, you know, when you mentioned in your opening that Groundhog Day happened in Nairobi, <laughs> yes. um, that, that was still the case, I would say, because even after, you know, several rounds of these talks already, we've come to a stage where it's still, um, consensus has still been elusive. Oh, um, so talks are progressing very, very slowly. 
Uh, and these were actually the, you know, this was the last meeting before it goes to the, what is called the Conference of the Parties, so where the parties meet mm-hmm. in their big meeting. Uh, we call it COP15 because it's the 15th meeting of the parties, mm-hmm. which will be held at the end of the year. So there's actually quite a lot of pressure, uh, you know, to try and, and, and come to agreement. But it was quite clear from what happened in Nairobi that on some of the big issues, um, there's still no agreement. Okay, all right. So, okay, so what I was reading was quite true then. Um, and, you know, just for folks who don't, maybe don't know about what COP15 is about, basically, you know, it is it is to deliver a global deal for nature and people. And it's sort of similar in significance to the Paris Climate Agreement. Am I right in saying that? Um, it, it, yeah, I think it's it's sort of projected in that yes, way. Although yes. um, it, it's not a separate treaty, it won't be a separate treaty under the CBD, but it will be adopted. So far, all the you know the plans is to adopt it as a decision of the CBD. Now, of course, the CBD is a legally binding international uh, multilateral environmental agreement, mm-hmm. uh, and the decisions adopted by its governing body, that is the COP, you know, of course, uh, will have to be implemented. So, um, you know, parties will have to take on the responsibility and the obligations and uh, implement uh, this post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Uh, But yes, I mean, in part, it's also, you know, um, of course, there's, and rightly so, there's been a lot of of attention on climate change in in recent years. Mm. And of course, helped by, you know, um, um, the the, the protests and and the youth movements, uh, climate justice movements around the world, right? Yes. Uh, But we're seeing sort of um, similar um, things in relation to biodiversity. And we can't really, in, in many ways, we can't separate biodiversity and climate change because the two are intimately linked, right? Yes. Climate change will have a huge impact on biodiversity. Uh, and, and and we know that, on the other hand, that biodiversity is also important, like like ecosystems are really important for helping communities uh, to, to adapt to climate change for, um, you know, um, increasing resilience uh, to climate change, for example. Uh, so these two things are very important and biodiversity is starting to gain uh, more attention and people are looking at this global biodiversity framework to like really say, okay, this has to be a, a, you know, a strong agreement that, mm. can, that can really do something because we know that biodiversity is really in crisis um, because um, the last report from the... Uh, IPBES, which is the Intergovernmental Panel um, on Experts in, on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, uh, basically we said that, you know, look, we're looking at, uh, you know, mass extinctions to come, we're looking at collapse of ecosystems, and, you know, they identified some of the major drivers of biodiversity loss, mm-hmm. uh, which include climate change, industrial agriculture, uh, land use and sea use change, uh, pollution, so these are some of the major drivers of biodiversity loss that need to be addressed if we're actually going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, so really, really critical uh, talks. And of course, this was, you know, leading up to, as you said, the talks that's ha- going to happen in Montreal in December, right? I mean, and China is still continuing as chair. Uh, these talks have been long delayed. Um, uh, but I was reading that uh, some environmental groups, including those, you know, the likes of Greenpeace, for example, wrote an open letter to say that progress on the final deal was not being made and that the talks lacked high-level political engagement. Would you agree with that? Was there a lack of political leadership in the whole process? 
Uh, I think, yeah, to some extent, yes, uh, because, of course, uh, at this level of the talks, it's usually uh, officials and technical experts uh, mm. who are there. Okay. In, in, in some sense, when we come to the COP, that's when we will get the political leadership, because usually at the COPs, um, uh, ministers would attend and ministers on the environment uh, would attend uh, and have, you know, high-level talks and their ministerial meetings, etc. Mm. And, and that we know needs the political, you know, these issues need political will to push them along. Um, so some of the biggest, uh, for example, differences uh, between um, countries of the global north or developed country, uh, countries and developing countries um, from the global south uh, have to do with things like uh, financial resources, right? Mm. Who's going to pay for all this? Yeah. Because if you have an ambitious uh, global biodiversity framework which says, you know, countries are going to do such and such and such uh, to, to take steps to protect biodiversity, um, we need to also have equity in this yep. because most of the world's biodiversity is held in developing countries, right? Mm -hmm. So like, for example, Malaysia is a mega diverse uh, country. Uh, but, um, you know, we know that there are, uh, and there is research increasingly showing this, that the resource use, uh, you know, and if you go back to colonial times, for example, a lot of the responsibility uh, does lie with the global north. So within the CBD, we have also something similar uh, and the operationalization of the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to financial resources and technology transfer. So there are provisions in the CBD that deal with this. Uh, but, um, you know, and this is uh, a continuous, uh, I would say, north-south fight or north-south division uh, <laughs> on, on, the, on the issue. Uh, because, um, you know, you still have a reluctance uh, on the part of uh, the developed countries to say that, okay, we're going we're gonna to put, you know, the funding to this and really um, give enough uh, to be, enable uh, developing countries to meet their obligations uh, under the CBD. And this is actually a provision uh, in the CBD. It's a, you know, a legally binding uh, obligation. So, you know, and, and a lot of times these issues uh, usually get sorted out at the last minute, <laughs> at the high level, uh, you know, when there is a political decision uh, yeah. for that to happen. So I guess we, we will see uh, more political engagement in the next few months leading up to the COP and hopefully at the COP itself. Okay, all right. Thank you for, for laying that out. You know, at least then we understand how these negotiations actually work. Um, let's just go for one quick break, Lee Ching. When we come back, let's talk about, you know, some of the outcomes of this set of talks. I'm speaking today to Lim Lee Ching. She's a senior researcher with the Third World Network. We're talking about the recently convened uh, talks, the open-ended working group on the post-2020 global biodiversity framework was held in Nairobi. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today is Lim Lee Ching. She's a senior researcher with the Third World Network. We're talking about the recently convened UN Bi uh, Convention on Biological Diversity talks. Uh, it was titled the fourth meeting of the open-ended working group on the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Basically, uh, you know, some talks ahead of the huge COP15, which will be taking place in Montreal in December after many, many delays. Uh, so we're talking about that now, what went down at the talks. So so Li Ching, um, I guess, you know, before we get to what wasn't so great about the talks, um, I mean, the good news was that I think two targets were finalised. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, I guess in, in some ways these were the less controversial targets. Uh, that's why you know uh, when you look at the text, uh, they are clean text, so there's no brackets in it. Usually, um, brackets in in these um, discussion means that there's no consensus, right? Not agreed yet. Um, so this will be what the COP uh, uh, will take up. But in fact, actually, sorry, I forgot to add that there will uh, they are planning a fifth meeting of the working group for oh. three days just prior to the COP. Okay. So that they can tidy up and clean up the text, try and find more consensus so that we're not going into the big meeting with many other agenda items to deal with trying to negotiate this. Um, because, um, you know, as explained, you know, the parties are still quite far away from, from agreeing um, things, right? Mm-hmm. So with the exception of these two targets uh, that are going now to the COP with what we call clean text, no brackets, uh, that were agreed. So one is with regard to, I would guess... Um, urban biodiversity mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's been agreed uh, talking about for example um, you know having biodiversity inclusive urban planning um, um, you know making sure there's ecological connectivity and integrity even in urban spaces because we know that's really also very important okay. uh, particularly for cities and urban areas so that uh, has been agreed and it will go to the COP uh, you know as, as it is without brackets and the other target is to do with um, what we call the non-financial uh, aspects of resource mobilization uh, or the means of implementation. So, of course, you know, in terms of how do we implement all these obligations under the convention, under the global biodiversity framework, um, there was initially one target that focused on that, but that's been split into two parts now. Okay. So the first part is about financial resources, which is probably the most controversial, tricky and sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. And as I can you imagine, I think it's got something like 67 brackets in a very long, complicated and complex <laughs> paragraph. Um, but oh this... Second part of this, what we call Target 19, so it's Target 19.2, has to do with things like capacity building, um, transfer of uh, technology, um, you know, innovation, technical and scientific cooperation. Now, that also has uh, been agreed. It actually came from Geneva, I think, with only two brackets. Uh, and um, from my perspective, actually, un- uh, rather unfortunately, because there was a bracketed text uh, talking about, because when the target talks about access to and transfer of technology, Olivia had actually proposed that uh, this, we, we, we have a phrase in there saying um, also that we need uh, what is called technology horizon scanning, monitoring and assessment. So the idea is that, of course, um, the South uh, does want to access uh, t- technology, but this has to be appropriate technology. It has to be you know, socially acceptable, environmentally sound, doesn't cause damage to biodiversity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that phrase, unfortunately, um, f- for various reasons, um, was uh, dropped, right? And one of the reasons is that they said, well, this is being addressed in another target, uh, which has to do with biotechnology, target 17, uh, which of course is important to include there, that's still not agreed. Uh, But from my perspective, we would have, you know, ideally like to see the idea of horizon scanning, monitoring and assessment, uh, coupled with the idea of transfer of technology in this target that is now clean. Well, that's that's how it is at the moment. But, you know, we, we think these ideas uh, are still important and uh, we'll be, you know, advocating for that and to put it in other targets so that we always have that 
uh, clear uh, message going through that it's not just willy-nilly about any kind of transfer of technology because we've got to ensure that whatever comes into our countries, we have the right to, you know, uh, assess them, monitor, mm. as well as um, what this term that's used, horizon scanning, to make sure, because a lot of the technological developments, uh, you know, in the life sciences, for example, mod, you know, modern biotechnology, um, and, you know, you've got things in the climate sphere as well, um, things that are coming up in terms of geoengineering, which, you know, m- might, you know, um, have potential, but also could have very far-reaching impacts, right? Um, so part of this idea, and, and that's what also the CBD does, is really about you know making sure that you know any technology that's transferred is also uh, safe and appropriate and ex- socially acceptable. Um, but in a nutshell, there is agreement on those two targets as mentioned. Okay, all right. So okay, so we've got two um, things, and again, you said they were more or less the easy ones to sort of uh, uh, d- uh, agree upon. But there were some very many key contentions, if I'm correct, uh, and I yes. do know that. <laughs> And we've seen, as you mentioned yourself, you know, um, there have been substantial divisions between the global north and the south, right? So, yeah, can you walk us through some of those contentious areas that are causing this divide? Yeah, I mean, one, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, in regard to financial resources and what we call also resource mobilization. Uh, because, of course, when the CBD was developed in 1992 during the uh, UN Conference on Environment and Development, or the Rio Earth Summit, as it's uh, popularly known, one of the principles that you know that underpins that is uh, the issue of common but differentiated responsibilities. Yes. Uh, but we have a you know a situation now where many developed countries are saying, well, you know, uh, things have changed, um, you know, and they're not willing to to assume those obligations. So those were some of the biggest divisions uh, because. What actually happened is that uh, a group of developing countries put on the table uh, at Nairobi quite an, a substantive proposal. Uh, now, this emanated from a statement uh, from an emerging group uh, that came together in Geneva mm-hmm. uh, called the Like-Minded Group of Developing Countries on Biodiversity and Development. And at the closing um, plenary in Geneva, they, they put out a, a substantive statement, uh, part of it calling for... Uh, the mobilization uh, from developed countries to developing countries of 100 billion US dollars uh, annually. And this is a similar target uh, as to what is existing under the climate change regime, right? 100 billion uh, um, US dollars a year. Um, because we know that, of course, uh, there is what is called uh, a gap in, in biodiversity finance, right? There's not enough uh, resources being mobilized for that. Um, and and the, this grouping of developing countries uh, in Nairobi, uh, 22 of them, uh, actually put a, t- a proposal on the table for the target that deals with financial resources, uh, including this um, ask for mobilizing uh, that particular amount of money, mm. uh, including also uh, the setting up of a dedicated global biodiversity fund, uh, you know, that would be able to uh, disperse money and funds to developing countries to meet their obligations under the convention. And very importantly, what um, this developing country grouping was focusing on is to say that, look, we, there's two parts uh, to financing resources. One is that we know that everybody has a responsibility, uh, you know, domestically, 
you know, maybe even from the private sector or, you know, that everyone should try and mobilize resources for biodiversity. And then the second part, which they were very focused on, is that, like, look, there are obligations under the convention that says very clearly that developed countries have an obligation to help developing countries to meet their obligations. And this is really the operationalization of the common but differentiated responsibilities principle. Hmm. So they, they put that proposal on the table. Now, this is very heavily contested, right? Because, um, as I said, many of the developed countries are not willing to, to, to accept that anymore. And they're saying that, no, you know, um, for example, we heard things like, well, CBDR, Common but Differentiated Responsibilities, uh, is not in the CBD. True, it's not mentioned, the words are not mentioned specifically, uh, but the principle is operationalized, right? Yes, yes. So there, there are these um, north-south divisions that we see uh, not just playing out in the CBD, of course we see it playing out in the climate change regime, we see it in many other fora as well. Mm. Uh, you know, so so that, that I think will be one of the most uh, sticky and contentious issues and will remain so until there is um, political will to, to actually find some common ground on this. Yeah, because even, um, even in the climate talks, right, I mean, all of this money was pledged, but we're not actually seeing that happening. So, yeah, I, can, I can't imagine it being yeah. an easy yeah, topic, <laughs> an that's, easy thing that's to That's very come. true. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, I mean, I think part of the work that uh, TWN has been doing is also to say that, of course, you know, we need more resources mobilised uh, to protect biodiversity. And, and particularly, we would like to see uh, more resources being channeled to indigenous peoples and local communities. Now, the science tells us that it is areas that uh, where indigenous peoples live and uh, protect are actually better protected and have higher biodiversity. You know, those, those conclusions are, are, have already been borne out by evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So actually, we should be doing what we can, our governments should be doing what they can to also support um, indigenous peoples and local communities to continue uh, biodiversity uh, conservation and sustainable use. And, and the other thing that we've been looking at as well is to say that, yes, there is what is called a biodiversity financing gap, but we also have to look at some of the structural issues that are causing the problems. For example, debt and austerity policies, right? So mm-hmm. our economic policies that governments have actually have a bearing on this because if you're looking at, like, for example, servicing debt, in foreign currency, one of the easiest ways is to go into extractive industries, right? Mm. Mining, um, you know, sort of industrial exports, etc., industrial agriculture. But these are actually having impact on biodiversity. Or if you have, for example, austerity policies uh, often prescribed by, for example, the IMF, right, to mm. developing countries, then they are governments are then stymied and not able to uh, uh, put resources in for the public interest into things like biodiversity protection because their hands are bound because mm. they have these austerity policies, which means they're not spending the money on where it's needed, right? Yeah. Um, so there's all these configurations and structural issues uh, that we also need. That I mean, as you know, the, the global community needs to address uh, because we can't divorce, you know, biodiversity. In one side and say that it's in this little bubble, but it's actually you know contingent on on what happens economically, as well as the kind of uh, policies that that governments put in place that will affect uh, you know how they protect uh, biodiversity. Uh, so, but th- but these are very big, of course, issues uh, that that need to be uh, discussed, and and they haven't so far got much. Um, traction within the biodiversity talks, but we know that they are important. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so this is definitely going to be one of the huge sticking points, even in Montreal, I'm guessing, right? Yes, yes, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 you know, I mean, linked to the point that I made earlier that, you know, we know that Indigenous peoples and local communities are really the best stewards of biodiversity. Uh, So one very, very big issue that has come up in the talks is, you know, in terms of protecting the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities, in terms of ensuring that they have secure land tenure, for example, and and facilitating, you know, uh, their continued stewardship of biodiversity. Uh, Many of the civil society observers, uh, the Indigenous peoples, I mean, there were various sort of of, um, small demonstrations that were held around the talks, and one of the key asks is saying, well, if you have no rights, there shouldn't be a GBF. We shouldn't be talking about biodiversity protection and biodiversity conservation and sustainable youth if we don't protect the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities. And that's another uh, very complicated issue in the sense of there are targets within the global biodiversity framework, uh, what we call the area-based targets, talking about, for example, protected areas, right? Mm -hmm. So what what we don't want to see is uh, some kind of uh, percentage target that just says, you know, governments have to protect, you know, uh, and and the the flavour of the day at the moment is 30 by 30, 30% uh, globally of all um, land and sea areas. Uh, But what we need to ensure in that as well is that, um, you know, there is protection uh, for the rights of communities because what unfortunately... We've seen uh, in the past, uh, you know, what, what some people call fortress conservation or, you know, a colonial type of conservation that envisages these areas uh, without people, right? And then you have, and in fact, while we were meeting in Nairobi, uh, in Tanzania, there's been this huge, um, you know, protest and, uh, because Maasai were being evicted from protected areas, right? Oh, okay. and, and, and that was a huge issue where... Uh, you know, local communities, indigenous peoples were actually being dispossessed of their lands to make way for so-called conservation, mm. to make way for things like trophy hunting, right? Yes. So if these things are done without um, considering uh, the rights and without protecting actually the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities, which are, you know, in, in international human rights norms like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants and other people working in rural areas and other international human rights law, then, you know, we're just, you know, protecting pristine areas in this kind of imagined um, so-called pristine areas where no people live, but that's not the reality in developing yeah. countries. Yeah. People live with biodiversity and we know already from the evidence that it is local communities, indigenous peoples who are sustainably using biodiversity, who can uh, conserve biodiversity uh, and, uh, you know, manage it well and govern it well. But we have to enable this. And one key area, of course, is to protect their rights. Um, so, so these are very critical areas in the discussions that have still found uh, no consensus. So, um, and it's a big fight, obviously, uh, mm. for many of the indigenous people uh, organizations that uh, are at these talks, um, and as well as many civil society um, organizations. 
Okay. It must be really quite tough. Yeah, these talks are quite frustrating, I imagine, just listening to you talking about it. Um, but there were some other key contentions as well, right? I mean, as you mentioned, you know, one of the leading causes of biodiversity loss is uh, agricultural practices, you know, our the way we produce our food pretty much, right? And mm-hmm. um, was, there, was there a lot of contention, you know, regarding this agricultural pollution, pesticides, uh, those sorts of things? Uh, yes, yes. I think that's that's also another key area. Now, as I mentioned, this um, report, the the uh, global assessment from IPBES, um, did identify industrial agriculture, uh, and particularly the land use change associated with that, and uh, the practices like um, you know using pesticides, chemical pesticides, as as major drivers of biodiversity loss. Um, so there there are targets within the GBF dealing with this issue. Uh, there is a particular target on agriculture, uh, well, agriculture and other productive um, sectors, uh, which uh, is, I mean, in what happened in Nairobi is that um, the the tax balloon, you know, again, um. uh, and many parties again were uh, essentially preserving their positions and saying, well, if you talk about, for example, agroecology. Uh, we're going to talk about sustainable intensification. So there is division in how uh, countries see what is the best way forward for agriculture. Mm. Uh, so at the moment, I would say everything's on the table. Okay. Uh, but of course, from our perspective, uh, we look at uh, practices such as agroecology, which mm. is biodiversity-based, as actually being uh, beneficial in terms of on many levels, both in terms of productivity, in terms of, of course, uh, no um, pollution uh, because of the, there is the non-use of chemical pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. You know, it's better for the climate. Um, you know, there's quite a bit of evidence now that shows that agroecology, uh, you know, is really kind of like. The, the better way to go for agriculture. But there are differences in opinion within countries uh, and between countries who, for example, have big uh, industrial agriculture operations. And, you know, so so some of the big um, agriculture exporters, for example, uh, are not in favour of that. Uh, then, of course, um, there is a target that deals with pollution, of which um, synthetic pesticides or chemical pesticides is one aspect. So it deals with things like uh, excess nutrient uh, pollution, um, um, pesticides is one of them. Um, so, but there's still no agreement as well on that. And of course, on on the issue of pesticides, what we have been advocating for is to say that look, um, you know, we could start with, um, for example, a phase out of highly hazardous pesticides, right? Those that are particularly hazardous, not just for the environment but also for human health. And we know there's there's tragedy in many in in developing countries. There have been tragedies because um, of the um, use, heavy use of uh, chemical pesticides affecting communities, affecting people's health, right? Yeah. Uh, so we want to also to phase those most hazardous uh, pesticides out. But of course. I mean, I would say there is also a, you know, a corporate lobby, um, you know, the interests of um, agribusiness, for example, that says, no, 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 we don't want to, to face this out. We still have to use it, but we have to use it, you know, in, in, in a more judicious way or more sustainable way. And there's, there's differences in opinion and how this can be done. Um, one of the, the target on pesticides, for example, um, initially called for a two-thirds reduction in use. Uh, and we're saying, yes, we agree with that, uh, but that, you know, many parties don't actually uh, agree with that. Some of them don't want to mention a figure. They don't want to have something 
that quite that high. Although there is evidence that shows that you still can uh, produce uh, enough food uh, and not compromise on food security, even with, when you reduce pesticide use. Uh, but we're also saying, like, look, we have to look at things like toxicity, for example, yeah. because even if we reduce use, um, some of the pesticides uh, that are coming in uh, are even more toxic. So we need to consider all these things. So there are quite a lot of um, technical considerations and how how do you measure this and, and what do you measure? Uh, so there's still big discussions around these issues. Okay. All right. Um, let's just go for one more quick break. Leaching, when we mm-hmm. come back, let's talk about some other, I guess, um, are, are there any other contentious issues, maybe some that you want to highlight? I'm speaking today to Lim Ching. She's a senior researcher with the Third World Network. We're breaking down what happened over in Nairobi for the UN Convention on Biological Diversity Talks. They convened another set of talks, and this was called the fourth meeting of the Open-Ended Working Group. And this is in relation to the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. We'll continue that discussion after one more quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Big picture bfm 89.9 welcome back this is earth matters on the bigger picture i'm juliet jacobs joining me on the line today lim Li ching a senior researcher with the third world network she's helping us break down what went down over in nairobi for the un convention on biological diversity talks this was the open-ended working group on the post 2020 global biodiversity framework it was held uh, the last week of june uh, Li Qing was there in Nairobi and she's helping us break down what happened. Uh, some couple of wins, as we as we uh, mentioned, but mostly uh, I think we just have to wait and see what happens in Montreal in December at COP15. A lot needs to happen uh, over there. So before the break, Li Qing, you were telling us some of the contentious issues. So, you know, ten, in terms of finance for forests, uh, protecting intact ecosystems. We spoke about agricultural pollution, uh, sustainable production, agroecology. Um Anything else that you want to bring up that you think was uh, an important thing that didn't get settled uh, at these particular set of talks? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, uh, as you said, not settled yet. Um, I mean, I think some of the, you know, some of the big things in terms of like identifying uh, what are the major drivers of biodiversity loss or what are the structural issues that aid this biodiversity loss are still, you know, still not not, uh, agreed on yet, right? Mm. Because we would like to see, of course, a global biodiversity framework um, that isn't just talking about um, although these are very important, of course, about, you know, we need to talk about rights, we need to talk about protecting ecosystems, we need to talk about climate change, for example. But we also need to address some of the structural drivers of biodiversity loss. I talked a little bit about debt and austerity earlier. Uh, another target that uh, deals with um, um, incentives and subsidies, for example, that are harmful for biodiversity uh, you know, again, you know, showing quite a lot of uh, differences in opinion. Uh, but we know that, for example, that there are um, that governments around the world actually um, subsidize activities that are harmful for biodiversity. Yeah. Now, conservative estimates by the OECD say this amounts to about five hundred billion US dollars per year. Uh, but you know, um, recent studies actually, when you count. Uh, then, you know, depending on the methodologies you said, this can be up to four to six trillion. The Dasgupta report, for example, commissioned by the UK government, four to six trillion dollars a year. Mm. So, you know, if you think that all this money is spent to subsidize fossil fuel industry, for example, oil and gas, 
industrial agriculture, industrial fishing. These are activities that harm biodiversity. And we really need to address this issue. It's very tricky because, of course, um, these discussions are also happening in the WTO, right? Mm. Uh, because when they talk about, for example, agriculture and fishery subsidies. But from the biodiversity uh, perspective, really we should be identifying uh, those that are harmful for biodiversity. But we also need to be responsive to the issue of equity and to be able to ensure that we know that, of course, uh, for some developing countries, you know, the ability to subsidize, for example, their small-scale fishes or their small-scale agriculture uh, is very important for livelihoods, right? Yeah. To ensuring that uh, people... Or, or if you have um, fuel subsidies... Uh, for 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 poor communities, for example, right? This is very different from subsidizing the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes. So we need to differentiate these kinds of subsidies, identify which are the ones that are harmful for biodiversity, while taking doing it in a equitable and just way, so that we don't affect communities. Um, so these are very tricky discussions, uh, which also you know kind of overlap um, with uh, WTO interests. Um, and and there's still no agreement uh, on that uh, yet. So, but it's a big issue that uh, we feel that does need to be tackled head on. Um, okay. the, the other thing that I think maybe I should mention uh, is the um, there has been a strong uh, women's caucus uh, in the CBD, hmm. and they have proposed and have got the support of parties for a specific target uh, focusing on gender. Right? Okay. To ensure that women and girls, uh, young people, um, have um, equitable access and benefit from conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity, as well are able to uh, participate uh, in decision-making and policy-making related to biodiversity. Um, so, so this is, is, is quite you know, uh, you know, progressive in the sense that um, you know, the CBD has a gender plan of action that will be adopted also at COP15. Uh, and, and, and it was, took a lot of um, concerted lobbying by uh, the Women's Caucus and other um, civil society organizations uh, to get this new target on the table. And there is now uh, a draft target 22. It's not agreed yet fully, but I think... Um, you know, that, that, that parties are coming together on this issue. And, and we think that's important because we know that women also, of course, women and girls yeah. uh, play an important role in biodiversity conservation. If you come to agriculture, for example, it's women who are the, the seed keepers who conserve bio, agriculture biodiversity. Uh, and, um, you know, so, so it's very important to also have a gendered, uh, gender responsive and a gender perspective uh, on this whole global biodiversity framework. Okay. All right. So, so there was a lot in these talks, but I guess you know, as you mentioned, uh, nothing much in that sense was was uh, agreed upon. So, what happens next? You know, I mean, what is there more on the road to Montreal, or are we going to be meeting? I say we. Are you guys going to be meeting next in Montreal at COP fifteen? What's going to happen? Well, I think uh, there will be some intercession, what they call intercessional work, uh, um, and this is likely to 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 be in the in the. Um, form of informal talks. Um, there is, I think, actually a proposal uh, that was mentioned in Nairobi okay. uh, from the co-chairs of the working group that they will set up some sort of um, 
informal kind of advisory type of group to try and you know bridge differences and you know to to talk with parties and, and look at the text and all that so what's important of course is that there must be um, you know equitable representation in such a group right it's got to ensure that uh, all uh, developing countries particularly uh, do have a seat at, at, the, at these kind of informals because sometimes when things go into informals you know we don't want um, text cooked up for example and then presented as a fait accompli uh, which is what will happen in Copenhagen in the climate talks for example mm-hmm. because that will just lead to collapse and mistrust right yeah. so it has to be a process that's open that's transparent that involves uh, all parties uh, if it's going to you know if it's going to be able to progress things but what has happened is that they also announced that they will have um, three days meeting of the working group in the fifth meeting just prior to the COP so that a lot of these contentious issues can 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 hopefully be uh, you know be agreed upon and and I think it, it needs um, yeah political will it needs uh, engagement from governments uh, you know in the run up to COP uh, because of course COP in two weeks you have a very heavy agenda if we come to COP with so many brackets it, it will take many 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 late nights uh, in mm. order to sort this out um, so yeah, I guess that we'll see increased um, activity, you know, um, bilaterally, multilaterally, uh, in the run up to COP. Okay, all right. So you'll be there uh, in Montreal as well, I'm guessing. <laughs> and, uh, and inshallah, okay, yeah. okay, God willing, right. yeah. Okay, all right. Um, any any last message, I guess, that you'd like to leave us with, Li Ching? I guess you know, in terms of Malaysia's uh, role in this, you know, what would you say? Uh, the, what would you say the role we play? And I mean, we are one of the 17 most mega diverse countries in the world. I mean, surely, you know, we have a lot to play in these talks as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's uh, absolutely right. I think uh, you know Malaysia, uh, we are we are a mega diverse country, so we have the responsibility also uh, to ensure that uh, we protect our biodiversity and that we also, uh, at the same time, as I said, uh, actually you know important and increasingly recognised uh, to prioritise the stewardship of indigenous peoples and local communities and to create the enabling environment, including the protection of their rights, so that they can continue stewarding uh, biodiversity well. Um, and I think, um, you know, Malaysia, yeah, we have to, to to play that, step up and play that role nationally. And of course, you know, all these discussions happen internationally, but later, they once adopted as the global biodiversity framework, then Malaysia will have to adjust its, um, you know, national biodiversity plans and strategies. It will have to ensure that it also meets this target. So it's in our interest to, to engage uh, fully uh, in this talks uh, to make sure that yes we we do protect biodiversity but we also have to ensure that you know governance and and issues like justice and equity are also there uh, you know in terms of the north south um, divide in that sense if I could say that but I think you know what's important for us at the national level um, you know as civil society is also that we we need to 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 be able to hold. Uh, the government to account to say that look we have a huge um, diversity we need to do what we can to protect it uh, because uh, you know in in our own national interests as well as in, in as a global contribution 
All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Li Ching, for helping us to break that down. And, you know, we'll definitely be in touch, you know, for further updates. Uh, <laughs> and I guess uh, you guys have done some... Uh, did you guys do reports on this as well at the TWN uh, website if people would like to go and find out more? Yes, yes. Uh, we've, I've just, uh, we've just put out an article yesterday on the resource mobilisation uh, financial resources uh, um, issue. Okay. Uh, and we'll have more articles coming out on, on you know, and reporting from, from Nairobi. Um, Okay, excellent. So folks just need to head to twn.my uh, to, to read all of That's that. That's right. Yeah? Okay. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Li Ching, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Lim Li Ching, a senior researcher at the Third World Network. Again, that website to head to if you'd like to find out more is twn.my. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.